Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do, a different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives, and page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining And when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it. And you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. You can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk. Uh, my name is Steve Anglesey. This week we've got a special edition previewing the latest book of diaries by our editor-at-large, Alistair Campbell. The first extracts from those diaries appears in this week's edition of The New European, which is available in shops now. You can get a signed copy of Alistair's book for free by visiting theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe and becoming uh, a member of TNE. It costs just £8 a month. Alistair Campbell's The Rise and Fall of the Olympic Spirit Diaries, Volume 8, begins in 2010. Labour are out of power after 13 years and facing a bitter leadership contest that will test loyalties and friendships to the limit. There are battles closer to home too. Our first extract focuses on the Leveson inquiry, the parts played in it by Campbell and by Tony Blair, and also the tensions in Alistair Campbell's relationship with the victor in that Labour leadership election, Ed Miliband. In a moment, I'll be joined by Alistair Campbell, but first the New Europeans media correspondent, Liz Gerrard, who spent 40 years working on what is known as Fleet Street, including as night editor of The Times. Liz, how are you? I'm well, Steve. Hello. Good. Um, We have uh, this large extract from Alistair Campbell's fascinating diaries. Before we talk about what's in it, can you kind of set the scene for us? What what set Leveson in motion 
and what was he supposed to investigate? Well, we started out um, in, in the early 2000s, um, a couple of um, News of the World, or a News World reporter and, and a private investigator were accused of hacking um, a royal phone. And News International insisted that they were, it was one rogue person, nothing to do, nothing um, systemic at all. Um, and indeed, the Guardian kept digging, or rather Nick Davis of the Guardian kept digging, and he kept writing stories about it, and News International kept denying it was, it, there was anything to look at, just look away, this is all old, old, old. And there were commons committees, they looked at all sorts of different things, they looked at the use of private investigators by, the, by journalists, um, and the police investigated, but they said, no, nothing to see here. And still Nick Davis kept on going. And he got his breakthrough um, when he discovered that the phone of the missing schoolgirl Millie Dowler had been hacked. Um, her voicemails had been hacked. And um, they wrote a story about that. And people didn't much care about celebrities um, having their phones intercepted. It, it just didn't hit the radar. But the moment this Millie Dowler story broke in July 2011, everything went ballistic. Now, by that time, Andy Coulson, one-time editor of the News of the World, was David Cameron, then Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Head of Communications. Um, so it was all very embarrassing. Um, he resigned and was subsequently um, charged and convicted of phone hacking, the only person so to be. And David Cameron said that he would set up an inquiry into the relationships between the press and the police and the press and MPs. And it was to be in two parts. And so part one of Leveson is what, what Alistair's writing about in this book, which started um, very quickly, actually. I mean, I, I was really quite surprised when I was reading the excerpts that it started started quite so soon after after the Millie Dowler scandal. Um, and then once the, all the um, criminal cases were out of the way, they were going to go into part two, which, of course, was scrapped once the Tories were re-elected. Yes, and we will I will come back to that. What, what kind of person was was Brian uh, Leveson? What, why did why, why was why was he a, a pick? Because obviously people, you know, people might know him from he prosecuted Rose West, didn't he? And he also uh, he also prosecuted Ken Dodd, which which didn't go uh, very well. For no, him. that didn't go down so didn't work so well, did it? Um, he was he was a respected judge. Um, and seen as a, a sort of safe pair of hands. Um, I, I, I was quite, he was, he's very gently, softly spoken um, and very pro-press actually, very pro-free press. Um, so he, he was quite a, quite an interesting choice because he wasn't part of the, by this time, of course, the hacked off, um, organization had, had it was up and running um but he he really wasn't on quotes on their side of course as a judge he's supposed to be impartial but this certainly wasn't a case of hanging the press out to dry by choosing Leveson yes that's right it it, it wasn't um uh, and uh, I mean 
you know, we can debate later on whether he did a good job or not, or whether he was allowed to do a good job or not, or the job whether the job that he did um, was um, was was kind of compromised in some way. Uh, what, what are the just turning to this extract from from Alistair's book? What, what are the things that kind of leap out for you? Because we've got Alistair Campbell's account of his own testimony, and we've got his account of vivid accounts of watching the testimony of people you know that, that you write about in the new european all the time people like piers morgan paul dacre but also lesser known people who had a huge impact like paul mcmullen whose testimony i'd kind of forgotten oh no well that, that's funny you should say that well i sort of the, that was the name that leapt out at me yes um, because i th- i thought alistair's bit about this he just sort of, he says he, on, on that particular day, um, McMullen was giving evidence on the same day as Nick Davis and I just spoke about, the man who set the whole thing up, and Rich Peppier, a Daily Star reporter who really blew everything up from inside, if you like. Yeah. Um, and then and then you've got Paul McMullen, and Alistair just says, um, McMullen was truly compelling. As it went on, you thought it couldn't get any worse, but it did again and again. Um for example, he's being proud of causing riots on the back of a paedophile campaign and paediatricians being mistakenly attacked. Um, I thought that, um, oh yeah, yes, and um, on, on Dowler, he said that um, the Dowlers should have been, were lucky that we, we had fearless hacks who would do whatever it takes to get a story. Um, he was, I of all the evidence, it's the one I remember the most clearly. Um, it this was, a, this was a tricky time in my own life, and I was off sick for a lot of the Leveson inquiry, and I, I used to sit sit at home with a hot cross bun and just sit there watching it hour after hour after hour. And yet the only evidence that I really, really remember is Paul McMullen, because... It was so awful. The things that he, he that he admitted to doing and saying that should be done, he was completely brazen. Mm. Um, but on that point about the downers, the one thing that I always felt was that of all the phone hacking that was done, probably the one that you could justify was the one that actually blew the whole thing open because they wanted to find that girl. That's what they wanted to do. And if they had found her, um, every, everything would have been wonderful. They weren't, they weren't, you know, they'd have been the great heroes. There, there wasn't an intent in, in hacking her phone to get a salacious story. There was an intent to find a missing child. Mm-hmm. I'm not defending hacking at all. Um, but of the all the hacking, that was the one that had a smidgen of good intent behind it. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, I will go through more of this with Alistair uh, later on in, in the podcast. What can we say now about the conclusions of, of, of part one of the Leveson inquiry as it was to have been then and, and how they were received by the press? I mean, it was not the, even allowing for what's happened since, it was not the toughest recol- uh, uh, regulation that people like Hacked Off were calling for. And, and it has turned out to have been a bit of a backdoor out of the last chance saloon that the press was supposedly drinking in. Yeah, absolutely. I 
I remember writing a blog at the time before it started, and, and I can remember the headline on it was that, that, that the Leveson inquiry was an expensive hiding to nothing. Um, I've changed my view on quite a lot of things about since I was doing those blogs in those days. And I don't, I, at that time, I said that public inquiries never produced anything worthwhile. It was just always a lot of hot air and recommendations that were generally shelved. Um, and I, I've, I really felt that Leveson was a waste of time because, um, for a start, the, it was actually journalism that revealed what happened. And it was also um, the criminal courts that dealt with, with the criminality. So all the elements were to deal with what happened were already in place. The fact that they didn't work, the police were slipshod, um, and, and the press was slippery. Um, all the elements were there in place. So I couldn't see that this, that this any public inquiry was going to change anything meaningfully. And, but of course, Cameron was on the defensive, wasn't he? It was his man, a man he had brought into Downing Street, who was, who was the fall guy for this. I mean, he was a perpetrator, but he was the only person really to pay any price. Um, and the, the conclusions of, of, a, of a state underpinned or statutory underpinned regulator was never going to work. They kept talking about self-regulation. I remember um, as the thing was going through um, Parliament, um, I can't remember the woman's name, who was at the time the, the culture secretary, and she kept on and on and on talking about self-regulation, self-regulation. But it wasn't self-regulation because nobody was going to sign up to, to what they were suggesting. They set up their own new version of the PCC called IPSO, um, but it was it was just IPSO by another, uh, it was just the PCC by another name. Um, it was still the same people behind it. Paul Dacre was still at that point the the the, the arbiter of the editor's code of ethics. Um, Nothing changed. It was still financed by newspapers, but if it's self-regulating, of course, it needs to be financed by newspapers. And the only one that came up to say, right, well, we want to be recognised as an independent regulator of the press via the Leveson um, um, thing was, was, was supported by Hacktoff and financed by Max Mosley. And there was no way in the whole wide world that the press were ever going to sign up to be regulated by something financed by Max Mosley. It was an absolute hopelessness. It was never going to work. Is, I mean, Ipso has succeeded at some things, I think you would agree, but it's not, you know, the, the powers that were given to it to impose fines, conduct standards investigations. These these have not been used. Why is that? I, it, it is a huge source of disappointment to me. Um, I, I really thought that they might actually have got the message. And they do have powers, but as you say, don't use them. There have been a couple of front page corrections. Um, there are all sorts of things have been put i mean the, the the katie hopkins cockroaches thing was allowed to go through no that complaints against that were rejected because it was fair comment um and common sense on lots of findings 
I think the moment I I just lost heart um, in 2016 um, or 2014, I noticed there were a lot of um, coverage of, of, of immigration in the press and it was really hostile. And I started to monitor it and I started to collect front pages. And in 2016, in the lead up to the referendum, it just went mad. There were just so many and it was so hostile. And if you looked, looked at the Daily Mail was bad, but the Daily Express was just awful. And it was day after day after day after day. There were at least two a week for the whole year. And I compiled what I called a thing called the chart of shame, showing all these front page immigration stories. And there was something like about 258 across Fleet Street. And I went to a meeting with I think it was I can't remember the name of the organization it was something like citizens abroad but it was it was a, a small organization that um that was helping immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees to settle here teaching them how to get around the various bureaucratic things they had to do and one of the women there was a was a pole and she she said that people that she had seen at the, she'd lived here for years and she people she saw at the school gate the moment after Brexit were saying you've got to go home now and it was awful anyway we had this meeting with Sir Alan Moses and the the then chief executive um, of Ipso and to ask about what could be done about the way the press was was treating these people and I this chart of shame thing was printed out and it filled this great table a great refectory table and it went right across the table and I put it in front of Alan Moses and he sat opposite me in this meeting and he looked at and he said we as Ipso can't do anything about this but the police can because it's clearly inciting hatred and I thought, if you're telling us that you are the you are supposed to be regulating the press, but you're powerless, but this is actually illegal, and that the police could do something about it, there's something very wrong. Yes, um, I mean, do you think that the press is healthier now than it was at the start of the the Leveson inquiry, and and how much of that is to do with with Leveson? itself and how much of it to do is to do with the, the fact that you know there is no phone hacking anymore uh there are huge amounts of hacking payouts that have been uh, that have been doled out and have come out of editorial budgets and, and of course editorial budgets have contracted because of lost revenue from copy sales and advertising and the kind of journalism that the news of the world used to do is just not a thing anymore I don't know that it is healthier. Um, there's no phone hacking now, but the but it's it the reporting is still highly selective. I mean, day in day out, we're getting people trooping up to the court to to agree settlements for hacking. They never get reported in the press, yeah. never. Um, and we don't. I mean, I don't know what 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 methods they have now but I don't think it's a healthier press I think it's not helped at all by the fact as you point out that there is the the um 
the financial constraints that have been caused by all these payouts and all sorts of other things, you know, the continuing decline in circulations, income, advertising incomes hit, the press is going through a really rotten time economically, um, which means that that there's less and less money to invest in proper journalism. And so people are doing far too much. Um, You know, one person is expected to write far more stories they do everything on the phone. They're then expected to file it for the web. They're ex- before they do it for print, then they have to file again, then they have to update, then they have to tweet all their stuff. The, the, the volume of work that journalists are now being expected to do in their, in their day-to-day life, it all mitigates against doing anything um, proper and worthwhile and, and lengthy journalism, which is why you end up with, with things like James Harding's tortoise operation where you actually have to have a special organization to do the sort of thing that newspapers used to pride themselves in doing it's it's a a a real state of affairs isn't it um it really is leveson too was uh, was supposed to look into well it was supposed to look into what happened at news international wasn't it it was supposed to look into um whether the police received corrupt payments from News International and unlawful and improper conduct within News International. Uh, and that was killed off quite quite quickly. Should that have gone ahead? Yes, I think it should. And I mean, at the time, I thought, no, it shouldn't. Um, I've, I've changed my view on quite a lot of things. I mean, the, the, but Theresa May very quickly um, did all the, all the nice things that... that, that, that that Mr. Dacre told her she should do. I mean, I really did feel that Dacre was running the country during that during that brief period of Theresa May's premiership. So she got rid of um, not clause, but section forty, the thing that said that that um, as it was interpreted by the press was that we'd have to pay even if we lost, even if we won, which wasn't actually quite the way it was going to work. It was to encourage people to use. Um, mediation rather than go to the courts um, and of course section part two of Leveson was jumped as fast as possible yes I think I think as you say I mean this thing about the back door out the last chance saloon I can't see any way they've seen off this and I can see no way really how we're going to get back to getting any level of proper regulation or I just wish they would I don't if you just had something that was sort of honorable <laughs> um but, but is it that it's it's this belligerence that just makes me so so despairing you know sort of that anybody who says could you just show a bit of restraint perhaps it's that's not the right, right way. Well, you're destroying democracy. It's our freedom. We must do whatever we want. And that, that's the thing that is, is so disheartening, is anybody suggests that you're just, aren't you a little bit over the top? No, we must do. We've got to do anything we want to do. It's our right. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, before I let you go, and before Alistair joins, um, because I know you're, you're passionate about this, let, let's let's just discuss very briefly another piece in this week's New European. Jess Brammer, the editor of uh, HuffPo, has written about the Society of Editors and their reaction 
overreaction, underreaction. I don't know quite what it was. It was certainly a reaction to the claims made in the Oprah Winfrey interview by uh, Meghan and Harry that they're, well, I mean, they said that the British press was was racist, didn't they? Um, <laughs> people who are unfamiliar with this bit of the, the, the Meghan and Harry uh, stuff. Just just talk us through what the what the society editors is society of editors is and and what happened. Well, the society is exactly what it says. It's um, it's people who um, it's 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 like a, sort of almost like a trade union, a professional body, trade union. It's just a collection of editors, and they they get together. Um, not really much in terms of um, as a unit, but they do um, they do put together the uh, the press awards every, every this yes. time every year they sponsor the press awards, and um, it's head of um, sorry I was just looking at, at, the, at the piece you were talking about. Um, it, it's edit, editorial director. I can't remember what his title was. Ian Murray executive, came out with a very quick. An executive director. That's it. He he came out very quickly with a with a, a statement saying we're not racist. We're very robust. We're wonderful. Um, and I think he just missed the tone altogether. And it was immediately pounced upon by um, a whole load of journalists from all, all over the place saying, well, actually, our experience is this and our experience is that. And he resigned after two days and a new and a new statement was issued. Um, now, I, I've, I've been asked to look at this for, for the trade paper and I'm tending to think there are, certainly the British press has a history of racism. I mean, you have... You have you don't have to look very far back to see evidence of that. I'm not so sure it is now, but it is bigoted. It is, and it, it is pretty poisonous. Um, and I'm not convinced that the mistreatment, if you believe that Meghan was mistreated, was down to racism. I haven't mm -hmm. actually seen evidence of racist stuff against, against Meghan. It may be racist in other ways. It's certainly anti-Muslim. Um, and it's anti, it's very xenophobic, our press. Um, and it's pretty, it's it's fairly overwhelmingly white as well, isn't it? I mean, is. my experience of working on newspapers was there were not a lot of people of, uh, of colour uh, about, and there were a lot of discussions about how to change this, as Jess says in the piece, and not Nothing very happened. much happened. No, this is it's, this is exactly. I've, I cannot think, and I, I've got to do a bit more research. But I'm because I'm, as I said, I'm looking at this for for the trade paper. But I can't think of a single non-white person who has a regular opinion column in any newspaper. Now you've got Baz Bagman, boy, the the showbiz man on the Mail, and you have. Um, Aaron Lewis in the Mirror, I think. Ah, right. Now, the, the, the Mirror is the one I haven't looked at yet. Um, but the you've got um, Satnam Sangera and Matthew Syed in, in the Times. Um, but they're not on... What I'm talking about are 
routine op-ed pages where, you know, they appear next to the leader talking about all sorts of things in life and in politics. And also then you have the, the full page colonists like the Little Johns and the Salas and people like that. I can't think of a single non-white one. And when you do get guest colonists um, who aren't white, they are invariably being asked to write about something that's race related. They're not allowed just to write about life. And more often than not, um, people like Candace Owens, who was called up for the Mail, Mail on Sunday and Trevor Phillips, um, more often than not, they're there to give the, the view that there is no racism and that people are over 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 um, emphasizing a problem that isn't really there and how they and of course that's the other thing is that to call they, the papers like to make a point that if they're being called racist that actually it's the readers who are being called racist they like to put it all on the, on the reader saying how dare they insult you by suggesting you're racist when of course it's the paper these are the things. These are the things that must change. I, I, I think, Liz. It's wonderful to talk to you again. Thank you so much, um, and we will speak again soon. I hope. Okay. okay. Nice to talk to you, Steve. Good luck with Alistair. Thank you. And now we're joined by Alistair Campbell, who the first extract from his new edition of Diaries is in this week's New European, available in shops now, or you can get a signed copy of the book for free by visiting the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe, £8 a month, uh, and a subscription to our fine title, which Alistair is the editor, in chief, uh, editor at large, rather, uh, will be yours uh, together with a signed copy of his new um his new it's the eighth edition now isn't it Alistair of your eighth volume yeah eighth volume I mean how I think that must be going on for about four million words now is that right uh well hold on this one's 374,000 and I think it's a bit longer than the other ones okay. uh, this one covers five years where the, the others were mainly two or three years this is 2010 to 2015 so it's it's the coalition years it's David Cameron having the rush of blood to his head and decided that what Britain needed was a referendum on membership of the European Union. It's no spoilers, but it didn't... <laughs> well, people know what happened then. It's, uh, it's the Scottish referendum. It's uh, Ed Miliband against Cameron's election. It's Clegg. Um, and there's all that. And then what, what's really interesting, I, I, I'm really happy for the new European to serialise it and to, and to make it part of this you know, offer to get new subscribers. Um, but it was Matt Kelly who who read it. And I would never have said do the Leveson period, the Leveson inquiry period as the as the first set of extracts. But actually I think it works really, really well. It's sort of, you know, it covers a lot of the big characters, you know, several prime ministers, Rupert Murdoch, yes. uh, you know, Piers Morgan, you got a bit Rebecca Brooks, Paul Dakey, you got a bit of celeb in there with Hugh Grant and Steve Coogan and these sorts of guys and um, so yeah I think it reads really well and what I like about um, doing it with the New European is that you know the real the paper really gives things space to breathe it's sort of you know you see a lot of extracts in I mean papers don't run extracts in the way that they used to I don't think Uh, but what what you often see is that the publishers said oh don't use more than 1500 words of the actual book but actually, for people to get a sense of it, 
course I want them to go out and get the book and read the full thing, but they're only going to do that, I think, one, if they're interested in the subject, and two, if they're getting picking up a paper, they want a sense of what it's, a, you know, they want, it, they want a, f- a flavour of it more than just a kind of, you know, little snippet. So I think what it's done is it, it sort of, it, take, it goes through that whole Leveson Inquiry story and phone hacking and Millie Dowler and all that. Um, and it, I, think, I, I think they've done a really good job. I mean, just before we, we, we go into the, the extract and the, the diaries, just just on the sort of the craft of, of this, are there moments now when you regret having committed to publishing your, your diaries and you do you think, oh, you know, I, w- I wish I'd just done a quick, a quick autobiography or a quick biography of Blair or, or something like that? Um, it is, a, I mean, it's a long, you know, it's, it's a, there's a lot of words, as we said. There's a lot of words and there's, and there's a lot of work can do it. It's not yes. just a question of transcribing and, you know, there's a lot goes into it. Do I regret it? I sometimes do. I sometimes will be sitting there thinking, oh, God, you know, not again. And um, But no, I think I like when I, you know, I'm sitting now looking at the new book, which arrived yesterday and, and on the bookshelves, you know, I, you know, I do a podcast with my daughter and yesterday she made yeah. the startling revelation that she's never read any of them. She flicked through the Blair years, which was the extracts of the extracts, um, but she's never read them. But I kind of like the idea that when I'm, you know, dead and buried, that they'll, they'll be there as a kind of body of work that will, you know, be a, an important part of the, you know, of, of, of that period of history. Not, you know, history is written in many, many, many different ways. But I think a diary that's written on the day at the time particularly if it's events that you're involved in personally, um, I think it's, you know, it's good to do. So yes is, your, is the short answer, but I'm glad, when, I'm glad I've done them. And, and the craft of sort of doing them, uh, just to stay with that, I mean, you, clearly you wrote them at the time, you're editing them now, many years removed. You, you, you've got a great recall of conversations in here. There are snatches of conversation, and then you sort of wrap up what the rest of what people say. Does that mean you were taking notes, free, just you know, through all of this frantically note taking? Were you recording conversations? No, no, I wasn't. As I'm, I'm known, I, I, no, I sometimes took notes in meetings. As part of your job, right? As yeah. part of my job, yeah. Um, so, like, if I was in a meeting with the only time when I, I actually thought I should take a note here because something very strange and very special is happening i took a note of all the good friday agreement meetings there came a point halfway through and i thought and actually it's the only time ever in my diaries where i've actually started on in my notebook saying you know 9 a.m 10 a.m 11 a.m i was i actually sensed something was happening but apart from that no i don't i don't take notes as it were with a view to what i'm going to put in my diary Mm. um so like now for example when, you know, I don't, I'm like a lot of people, I don't really have a notebook in the way that I used to do because we're so kind of digital. I quite often take notes on my phone. I quite often take notes just on, you know, scraps of paper. Whereas, you know, if you remember when, when I was working down the street, I used to walk around everywhere with these big A4 notebooks that um, that's where I made, you know, that's where I wrote. And uh, and the diaries themselves, I would then, you know, they are, they are, uh, a4 page size a4 page a day often it goes over that and so I, they're full of sort of scraps of paper as well um but i've become i've become more electronic in it and I, you know i'll be honest i don't think they're as good um 
in you know the ones that I'm doing now I'm not sure that I I think there's something about pen and paper at the end of the day that just gets it better and I mean all editing is selective clearly but there is quite a lot of stuff in 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 this book and in others that doesn't portray you in a, a favorable light or doesn't portray people like Tony Blair always in a in a in a favorable light is it difficult to do that you hover over the delete key uh no not really I mean I think if you're going to do it you've got to do it properly um is it, I try not to be there are things that I'll take out if I think either that they're inaccurate and sometimes if I think they're just unfair or over the top um but generally about myself I'm not that bothered I mean uh, you know I, I think that it's important partly because of some of the other stuff I do now in terms of campaigning on mental health I think it's important to keep that stuff in when I'm going a bit you know off the rails or I'm very depressed or whatever um I do give my family the right of the red pen um but actually this t- and this time particularly because uh, I think next week the paper is going to focus in part on my son Callum, who this is in this period covered by this volume when he, you know, really was struggling with alcohol and alcoholism. Um, so I felt something like that, which was obviously incredibly important to us as a family. Um, but I, you know, if he'd have said to me, "I don't want any of that in print," then I would have just taken it out. Mm. Um, but as it happened, he said, "No, I'm." You know, I'm I'm really proud of what I've done. I'm now eight years without a drink, and so that sort of thing. And then Fiona, my partner, reads it, and sometimes she she gets really she gets really fed up with the way that I keep. Uh, I suppose you'd call it. I do quite a lot of you know. Met so and so. She was very attractive. Um, Euro Eurostar waitress, really gorgeous. That kind of thing. Oh dear. Oh dear. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. Um, but it's a diary, isn't it? Well, exactly. I mean, it's you know, at, at least at least it is honest. Um, uh, just turning to this extract in this week's issue of the New European, when, where, where <clears throat> to be honest, I think the only person that you describe as attractive is David Ginola, um, <laughs> uh, which you know. Um, but it, we're opening with you. You're writing your paper that you're going to submit to the Leveson Inquiry, <clears throat> and Tony Blair asks you to take out a bit that's attacking Rebecca Brooks, who at the time was obviously, well, then as now, is running Murdoch's newspaper operation in the UK and uh, presumably was close to Tony Blair at that time. Doesn't that alone prove that New Labour was too close to the, to the press, do you think? No, I don't think that alone does. I think, I think that, um, you know, we, we, I felt by then, post the whole Millie Dowler thing, I'd, I, in a sense, had slightly, well, more than slightly, I'd, I'd pretty much burnt my my bridges anyway, because when, uh, the, sometime before that, I'd actually gone out and said, look, this has just gone beyond anything we thought was going on. There's got to be a proper inquiry. I was very encouraging of Ed Miliband in pressing for that. But I think what it says about Tony, actually, is that Tony's somebody who kind of didn't want to put the boot in while somebody was down, I guess. Now, you could argue that, She's not down anymore. She's back doing what she did before. And um, Murdoch stood by her the whole way through. And there you go. But um, I think that's what that says. I don't think it's as as big a deal as you suggest. Did we get, you know, the thing about, you know, the, the headline that the New European has put on the thing is, is Tony basically saying, look, you know, the thing about the press, if you get them, if they're offside, they're like the mafia and they can kill you. 
Um, so you do your best to try to keep them on the side. And he, you know, that was pretty much the basis of what he said at Leveson. He sort of, he kind of did make it sound a little bit like a pact with the devil. Mm. Um, and it's, let me also say this, and I think this applies to a lot that's going on in our politics and our media at the moment. It is, I'm afraid, just so much harder for Labour leaders. Um, I mean, look at what Johnson gets away with at the moment, whether it's on Brexit, whether it's on COVID, whether it's on corruption, whether it's on his private life. Um, you know, he doesn't says things every single day. You know, the other day, I, somebody tweeted this morning, I saw, like Laura Koonsberg did, did that long piece about yes. COVID and, you know, had a line about how Johnson basically said at the start, oh, we're just going to, you know, let's just ignore it or go away. Right now. I guarantee you that would have been something to do with Tony Blair, something of similar import and of some, something similarly flippant and wrong. It would be embedded in the public mind and it would never leave it because the press would just go on and on and on and on. Whereas this lot get away with murder. Um, so I, I get what you're saying and I understand it, but I think I just, I just say in Tony's defense that, you, it is harder. It's a lot harder if you're on the Labour side to try to keep this kind of, you know, potentially rabid animal in the corner of the room. You want to keep it in the corner of the room. You don't want it centre stage biting your legs off. Was there any sense during your Downing Street years that you would tackle press regulation? Um <clears throat> Well, it was one of the things that Tony and I used to argue about. I, it was less about regulation. It was more about what sort of culture we were allowing to develop by not really challenging what their role was in our culture, our society. Um, and because of the, you know, the point that Tony was making, he also thought that the public wouldn't really understand. They, they, they don't, those pe- people who read the Sun, read the Mail, read the Express, etc. They don't see the problem with them. Um, you know, they think they're doing a good job. That's otherwise, why would they, why would they keep buying them? Um, but what I kind of felt at a deeper level was that there was a cultural impact that our press was having, that that was in turn having a, 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 an impact on our standing in the world. Mm. Um, you know, and I remember a previous volume describing a conversation with Gerhard Schroeder when he was Chancellor of Germany. And he said, your country's weird, you know. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, any country where your newspapers are as popular as they are, that is a weird country. Um, And now, you know, it's a view. Our media, of course, you know, most of our newspapers think they're brilliant. Um, They very, you you saw recently with the whole thing with Megan, and I I heard the end of your conversation with Liz, um, you know, that, the minute you criticise them, they all kind of get together and say, no, we're not racist. Mm. Uh, you know, no, we don't intrude in privacy. Um, you know, we're just giving the readers what they want. And I thought that was a very astute point Liz made that, you know, if you attack them, you say they're, you're attacking their readers. That's an easy game that they can play. And so I think we, we did have that discussion, but Tony's general view was, um, you know, the public wouldn't understand if we, if we made that a priority. Yes. I mean, through this, the, the Leveson inquiry, you, and you write about coming into contact with people like Steve Coogan, Hugh Grant, 
who were both kind of involved with hacked off, which we were talking about with Liz earlier on, the body that was calling for tougher statutory regulation of, of the press. Of course, both of those people had had elements of their private lives exposed by the press. What, what did you make of them? Were, were they... Were they honest? Were they earnest? Was there a touch of revenge? Was there a, a, a bit of, of both? No, I, th- I think they were, you know, pretty well motivated. Max Mosley as well. I became, <clears throat> I became impressed. I was impressed by Max Mosley, who was, I mean, <laughs> you know, he was eviscerated, in, if you like, in terms of what the, 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 the stuff that was written about him. Um, and he just thought, right, well, I'm big enough and strong enough and rich enough. I'm going to, I'm just going to go for it. Um, I think all of them were were pretty mal, well motivated. I mean, is there an element of revenge? I mean, I don't know, but um, I think that, you know, the one thing I'd say about them is they still keep going on it. That means it means a lot to them. I don't think it, you, you don't do that if it's just about you, if it's just a kind of, you know, a little personal vendetta you've got against this journalist or that journalist or this newspaper or that newspaper. I think they feel that there's something, you know, really wrong um, and that it doesn't get addressed because this is a this is a, a, a power which abuses itself. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I was I think it's very hard for celebrities because this is the other thing the media do. They like celebrities that play their game. Mm, of course, if a celebrity yeah. plays their game. They'll get a better press. Celebrities that don't play their game. And you put Hugh Grant and Steve Coogan right up there. Well, you know, they, so it's it's quite a. It's a big thing to do to go. And I remember, you know, the, 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 the extracts covered this period when Ed Miliband was making the decision to go full frontal and say there's got to be an inquiry and there's got to be this and there's got to be that. And he really went for them. And, you know, he probably paid a price for that. But I think sometimes you, 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 you really do need to stand up for what you believe. And I felt people like Hugh Grant and Steve Coogan, I mean, they don't, it's not as if they need the, the profile, either of them. Um, I think they, you know, I think they did it because they really believed it. Um, I mean, we, 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 we go through this fascinating, this fascinating stuff in there. Paul McMullen, you, you reminded me of who Liz and I were talking about earlier on. But we get to November uh, 2012. The, the report is published. It kind of says there's no widespread corruption of police by the press, but it does say that politicians and the press have become too close. Press behaviour at times has been... Uh, unacceptable. There's, there's a, a tough new independent regulator uh, is, is about to be introduced. What, what did you, what was your reaction to that at the time? And, and, and subsequently, how do you feel this has been worked out? I, I'm actually wondering whether there was a bit of a rush to judgment with Leveson and whether, you know, the, the whole process only took you know, it took about eighteen months, I think, and it seems uh, it, it seems like some some steps may have been missed, which which might have made it Ipso a bit more uh, a, 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 well, a bit a bit more uh, powerful than it, it seems to have been now. Mm. Well, you, but this this goes back to the the point in a way that that I was referring to when just you know talking about the discussions I had with Tony Blair, the politicians in power at the time, David Cameron at the head of them, they didn't want it. Mm. Um, the media didn't want it. And they kind of, you know, I don't mean conspired as in had a conspiracy, but between them, they managed to manage the politics so that it kind of just went away. 
Um, you know, and you mentioned the whole thing about the police. I mean, Leveson 2 was meant to cover that. It's not even happened. It's just been dropped. And, you know, if you go back to the time that Leveson was on, I mean, it was leading the news day after day after day. And it, you had the sense of it being really important in the national life. But it's yet another example. You know, we've talked before about the, 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 the People's Vote campaign. And that's another example of where unless you have the numbers in Parliament that are going to deliver the change, then it's not going to happen. And the numbers in Parliament were were not really there. And so the government got away with just kind of quietly dropping it. And, you know, I think it was a massive lost opportunity. I, th- I actually think, if you remember, David Cameron said, as long as it's not completely, what did he say? As long as it's not completely bonkers, whatever Leveson comes up with, we're going to implement it. Well, nobody could say it was bonkers. In fact, that day that I remember going over to the QE2 where all the hacked off people were meeting. And I'd say within that group, reactions were very mixed. Some people thought it was, you know, it just wasn't strong enough. Some people thought it got the balance just about right. There were a couple of people there who thought, actually, you know, we can really, really work with this. Um, But you can only work with it if there's then the goodwill to see it through. And I'm afraid there wasn't. And um, I, I say in the in the diaries that if you remember during the inquiry, Michael Gove made a speech to the press gallery. He couldn't have been it couldn't have been more nakedly political, which you know is kind of what Michael Gove does, but essentially saying that the inquiry itself was having a chilling effect on free speech. Now, what they were doing from the word go, they were pushed into having the inquiry because of the Millie, what the Millie Dowler thing just revolted so many people, it became a tipping point. But then what happened was that they thought, how can we use this politically to frame it as us on the side of the press and Labour on the side of regulating the press, which we will then portray as being against sort of, you know, freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what they did successfully. And as a result, I think it was a massive lost opportunity. And if so, you know, even the new European readers who are, or, as we know, incredibly intelligent and very, very bright. And otherwise, why would they read such a wonderful paper every week? But, you know, how many of them even know what Ipso is and what it does and how it operates? Yes, it's a very good question. Um, and uh, it, as, as, Liz, as Liz said, and I think you, you probably had joined us just as she was saying it, it's hard to see um, this, this opportunity for, for sensible regulation being being offered at any point again and it's kind of been declawed hasn't it um i just want to i want to turn to the the other current that's in the the, the extract that, that we publish which is a kind of a you know an awkward relationship with the, the new custodians of labor at the time the previous volume has ended with gordon brown leaving downing street cameron is coming in with the, with the coalition in, in this one we've got the battle of the millibands what was your part in the battle of the the Millibands and your feelings when Ed Millibands won and then you know did it feel like when that happened and then what happened with the next leadership election that 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 was all a kind of a damning verdict on you and Tony Blair and and Mandelson and the whole of New Labour? No it didn't feel like that but it it felt that we've been in power for quite a long time I mean you know a decade for any government and of course what this this lot that have now been in for 11 years but partly as a coalition and you know with one two three different prime ministers we had you know two prime ministers over 
uh, from you know 1997 to 2010. That's 13 years as a, you know, it's quite a long time, put it that way. Um, and then, you know, Gordon goes, um, leadership contest takes place. And, you know, my role, I mean, I say in the introduction that I, I sometimes feel, you know, because David obviously is somebody I've worked with very, very closely over many, many years. And David's a really good friend. You know, Fiona and I were, we were witnesses to his adoption papers and, you know, we're close. And, but after the whole, you know, I got, sort of sucked back in by by Gordon into kind of helping out in the 2010 election and I I just had sort of had enough and I also like a lot of people it's a bit like the Brexit referendum you make assumptions I thought David would win Mm. Um, and you know people the the book is littered with people saying oh you lot picked the wrong Miliband and I think Ed's got a lot of strengths and I did did go back and uh, helped him in some of the TV debates and some of the broader strategy stuff. Um, but I think sometimes the country just sort of makes a decision. And, and I, I think that, you know, I say in the book that it felt like we'd gone from one Shakespearean drama, Tony Gordon, into another, and this time involving real brothers. Um, and it just felt, oh, I'm not sure I can face this anymore. Um, and, you know, we are recording the diaries. It did, you know, David and Dave, we had some difficult conversations. I think David felt I'd sort of, slightly vacated the field and to some extent I had because I was just I kind of wanted out of it and I thought I can't just keep going you know because the other big theme in the book in a way is my own sort of struggles with my mental health and I've got a you know psychiatrist who's telling me that my demon is an addiction to politics and my demon is an addiction to being dragged in and and being made to feel or making myself feel because others are making me feel that only I can do this Mm. And he says, that's what they know and that's what they're playing to. And that's how they reel you in every time. Now, I think that's a bit harsh on them. Um, but I know what he means. And so so what happened really was that I stayed out of it. Uh, how did I feel when David lost? I thought I felt pretty bad, actually. And I, and, and I thought it was a mistake. Um, I didn't see it as a... Did I see it as a, as a, as a, a sort of a denunciation of us? What I did find odd, and I found it odd ever since, is that, the, you know, whatever people think about Tony or, or indeed Gordon or me or Peter or anybody else, you know, we won three general elections. And they're the only three general elections that Labour has won in the last 11 elections. Um, that, and yet... It became, even in that leadership election, David didn't want to be seen as mm. sort of heir to Blair and Ed didn't want to be seen as heir to Gordon. Um, and that all struck me as just a bit odd. I'm not saying you should sort of... And, and one of the things going through this volume of diaries is Ed and I having this constant argument where I'm saying you've got to do a better job of defending the new Labour record. And I think Ed felt I was doing that almost out of a sense of my own kind of amor yes. propria, whereas actually... I was genuinely worried that if if the Labour Party don't defend the successful record of a Labour government, you know, and you've got the Tories are going to attack it for obvious reasons, most of the media are going to attack it for obvious reasons, who's defending it? And, you know, it's, it's defending it so as you can win the argument, a Labour government is always better than a Tory government. Uh, but and, and I had that argument literally right up to the last day. <laughs> and I, I said to a memo, 
just before, I think it might have just been before the last debate, say, my, la- my final, 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 final attempt to persuade you. Um, but I never did. And equally, I understand why Ed, a part of Ed's argument was, you know, you're in opposition, you've only got limited oxygen, you've got limited space that you can, that you can command. If I'm trapped into just talking about the past as opposed to talking about what I want to do in the future, that is not going to help me. My point is that if we'd have sort of steadily defended the record through the whole piece, um, I think it'd have been in a better place. Now, there's a, there's a quote, uh, well, you're, you're, you're praising what, what Tony Blair said, but you say he felt on Ed Miliband that the basic strategy was wrong. He, Ed had the view that the country had moved to the left because of austerity. He felt Ed was not making the impact that he could be but ultimately it was because he had the wrong politics and the wrong strategy. And, I mean, we, we talked about Ed Miliband there, but a Labour leader who is not making the impact he could be, for whatever reason, does seem strangely reminiscent of the, the, the present time. So coming right up to date and looking, you know, May the 6th looks very worrying for Labour in some areas. Just just give me a quick assessment of Keir Starmer's performance at the moment is 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 this just a, a waiting game does he have to bide his time or are there things that concern you um well yes it's a bit of a waiting game and yes to some extent he has to bide his time but also yes there are things that concern me um and you know if you if you just think about what this government has done and what it's not done um i mean it's it's got to be. I know I'm biased. I, I put that right out there. But it's definitely the worst government of my lifetime. I can't think of any other government as bad as this in terms of character, in terms of policy, in terms of its lack of understanding of lack of commitment to Parliament, lack of commitment to telling the truth. I mean, I just think they're awful. Added to which, on the two big challenges, one planned, I their dream of uh, you know getting out of the European Union, that's going badly wrong. COVID going spectacularly wrong, apart from one element, which is the only bit they talk about, which is vaccination. And even that now looking slightly more worrying than it was a week ago. Um, and yet Labour, you know, really struggling in the polls. Now, <clears throat> I did an interview with David Lammy, um, which I wrote about in The New European, where he, made, he did make a really interesting point, which maybe I hadn't given enough credence to. He said that when you lose as badly as we lost, what it means is that people have stopped listening to us and we've got to earn the right to get back into those conversations that they're having. And maybe Keir's thinking that's where he still is. I just feel that on these two things, they've been too... I was, I was really not happy that they voted for the Brexit deal. I think it disables them on Brexit. And I think on COVID, whilst I completely understand the country wants parties to pull together, wants all politicians to be focused on trying to help the country through this. At the same time, because Johnson is so untrustworthy and the Tory party is so ruthless, all that's happened as a result of that is that whenever Keir backs them, say in a vote or a, you know expresses support on the vaccination, whatever, he says, thank you very much. And whenever he even questions it, never mind criticises it, they sort of throw all this stuff about him, you know, he wants us to fail and he's all over the place and he changes his mind and one week this and one week that. And I always say that in a, when you're in opposition and, you know, we're talking here about volume eight. If people go back and read volume one, 1994 to 1997, 
um, I really do recommend it to people in the Labour Party because I think you get a sense of how hard it is. Mm-hmm. Because we won, and we won big, I think sometimes people look back and think, oh, it must have just, everything must have fallen into their laps. It was really, really, really hard in that you've got to be on it all the time. And, you know, I won't give Johnson much um, by way of praise, but I will give him energy. He's out there all the time. Now, he might be out there sort of dressing up in silly clothes and hats and coats and all that, and he might be out there telling lies, and he might be out there blah, 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 and he might be out there going to Northern Ireland and not solving it, uh, (laughs) announcing money for buses that probably won't get delivered and what have you, but he's out there. And my sense of labour is that they're just... They're not out there enough. There's no, there's no real kind of oomph in the campaigning and the fighting. And, and in opposition, that's what you are. You're a campaigning force. That's what you've got to be. Yes, it is, uh, it is worrying. It is worrying. And uh, David Lammy did make some fascinating points in that. Alistair, time is against us. I'm sure we will talk again soon, uh, maybe about better times for Keir Starmer. Um, thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast. Brexit Diaries next, I, I, I think. Are well, you... hold on, we're up to 2015. So, yeah, I guess it will be. That'll be depressing as well, won't it? <laughs> but, uh, no, listen, I think the, the thing I say about, let me just say this about Keir, though. He's my MP and I like, as a bloke, I think I, I like him. And I think he's, the, the, you know, he's got something that Jeremy Corbyn just didn't have, which is that the, the ability of the public to see him as a prime minister. Mm-hmm. But to get there... They've got to know, not just about you, not just about you, Keir Starmer, but but what the Labour Party is, what it's for, what it stands for. And that then involves, you know, some really big strategic choices. And they've got to be made and they've got to be articulated. They've got to be argued over. And then they've got to bring forward the the policies that, uh, that have got to kind of, you know, excite the public and make the public think, yeah, I can go with that. Because at the moment, I mean, this is a government, to my mind, that ought to be kind of pretty much dead in the water and they're anything but. Yeah, they're seven points up. Fascinating stuff from Alistair Campbell there. Thank you so much. The first extract from Alistair Campbell's new set of diaries appears in this week's edition of The New European. It's available in shops now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Become a member of uh, The New European. £8 a month will get you your newspapers and it will get you a signed copy of Alistair Campbell's uh, new volume of diaries. Thank you very much, Alistair. My pleasure. And sorry for the pings. I forgot to turn my notifications off. (laughs) All you digital kids. (laughs) See you later. Speak soon. And finally, on the New European podcast, we come to the Hall of Shame. It's our repository for rubbish ministers, political blab. They're just things that are annoying me gently. And let's start with an old friend. Uh, on Tuesday evening, the Conservative MP David Davis used parliamentary privilege to have a go at the Scottish government's handling of the Alex Salmon affair. Uh, David Davies told MPs, I've got it on good authority that there exists from the 6th of February 2018 an exchange of messages between civil servants suggesting that the First Minister's Chief of Staff is interfering in the complaints process against Alex Salmond. Um, And that's very serious, except that the allegations that that Nicola Sturgeon's Chief of Staff did interfere with the handling of those sexual harassment complaints against Salmond 
is fundamentally untrue, according to the woman involved. Uh, in a statement that was released by Rape Crisis Scotland, she said that she had approached the chief of staff for advice, but she did not tell them who the complaint was from, uh, who it was about, or the nature of the complaint. It, it just seems amazing to me that somebody like David Davis, with his legendary grasp of detail, could get something like this so wrong. Um, Anne Woody can call an hour lack, um, and as you would expect, uh, Anne has got a hot take on the tragedy of the day. Uh, she begins in her Daily Express column, sorry, but I do not think the Met got the policing of the unlawful vigil on Clapham Common wrong at the weekend. Uh, and then we progress. The much bigger issue from which these would-be martyrs are a mere distraction is the safety of women on the streets. The cops cannot patrol every road and CT CCTV cannot cover every last bush. However unfair it might be, women must try to avoid walking home alone at night. If it's impossible to walk with a friend, then a cab is the answer. And yes, that costs money that a man in a similar position would not have to spend. But this is an instance in which which equality must yield to common sense. That's unridicule for you. And so in her world, ladies, it's it's all on you, I'm afraid. Um, I think the rest of us live in a, a grateful... I'm grateful to say that the rest of us live in a, a different world. Uh, Boris Johnson is in the Hall of Shame this week. I mean, not just for the, the big Laura Coonsberg piece on Brexit on... Uh, uh, I'm not on Brexit, on the uh, coronavirus, on the BBC News website. Um, I think we we kind of knew uh, this already, but here we have confirmation that at the end of January last year, the Prime Minister and his team were feeling exhausted but elated by the end of Brexit. Uh, ministers and officials, wrote Laura Koonsberg, had already been meeting to discuss the virus in China, but it felt thousands of miles away. There's a good, good reason for that. China is thousands of miles away. Uh, one source told Laura Koonsberg there was a lack of uh, concern and energy. The general view was that it was just hysteria. It was just like a flu. The prime minister was even heard to say the best thing to do would be to ignore it. And he repeatedly warned several sources told Laura Koonsberg an overreaction could do more harm than good. Well, I mean, that is extremely concerning. Um, I think we kind of knew that in the early days of uh, of the pandemic, Boris Johnson didn't take it seriously. Um, but what I wanted to put him in the hall of shame for was his, you know, we, we hear constantly that Boris Johnson has got a strong libertarian streak that despite his attitude on Brexit, he comes from the, the left wing of the party. But where is his strong libertarian streak when he's passing legislation that would have made last year's Brexit process illegal? And where is his strong uh, libertarian streak when he's giving Pretty Patel the green light to send refugees out of the country to God knows where will we process their asylum claims? And where's his strong libertarian streak when he, when he thinks it's okay for Jacob Rees-Mogg to call a journalist a knave or a fool just because that journalist accurately reported Dominic Raab saying, I squarely believe we ought to be trading liberally around the world and if we restrict it to countries with human uh, European Court of Human Rights level standards of human rights we're not going to do many trade deals with the growth markets of the future a true libertarian would loathe this awful government and boris johnson is not a true libertarian and next in the hall of fame is Anne widdicombe again because thinking about boris johnson she, she wrote this this week i loathe the pm's blatant lack of morality in his private life i'm furious with his flip-flop approach to covid i resent his pretending that he affected brexit without any 
help from the Brexit party. His betrayal of our fishermen, and especially of Northern Ireland, has almost certainly guaranteed I will not be voting Tory again in any foreseeable future. Yet, for all that, whenever his dishevelled head pops up, I grin. When the Prime Minister talks about squashing the sombrero, I laugh aloud. Keir Starmer's biggest problem is not his own party or his failure to impress, but simply that people can't help liking Boris Johnson. Yes, let's just elect the person who's incompetent but make us laugh the most. Let's put Norman Wisdom in charge. Um, Let's put anyone in charge, Russell Howard or Michael McIntyre, anyone who makes us laugh in in charge, anyone who sits in the comedian's chair in Richard Osmond's House of Games, put all of them in charge. Just put anyone in charge apart from a sensible analytical politician who will dedicate their life to public service and do a good job. Last in the Hall of Shame this week is another old friend of ours. It's Nigel Farage. And he uh, said this week that nobody in the world in history has done more for people of colour than the British royal family. Just let that one sink in. Nobody in the world in history has done more for people of colour than the British royal family. And I think we can all look back fondly to the days when Princess Michael of Kent issued the Emancipation Proclamation and Prince Edward's I Have a Dream Royal Knockout was held at the Lincoln Memorial. Well, that was the New European Podcast with me, Steve Anglesey. My thanks to Liz Gerrard. My thanks to Alistair Campbell. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. Subscribe to the New European newspaper at the neweuropean.co.uk. Don't forget uh, about um, that offer to get a signed copy of Alistair Campbell's book if you subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And you can follow the New European on Twitter at the New European. And after our Alistair Campbell themed edition, it only seems right to say, Mr. Campbell, please play your bagpipes. See you next week. Here you go. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.